0: This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, the courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, the end of the season is here, mate. How are you feeling?
0: Uh, emotional, mate. Um, <laughs> because I, know I suppose you're, you, you might be glad to see the end of this one. Yeah, yeah, from maybe a, a fan supporting perspective, yeah, but I'm just aware now that we're gonna have to spend the next three months predominantly writing about transfer content as opposed yeah. to actual football matches. Um,
1: the, <clears> the
0: the dreaded the four
1: pieces, the dreaded, um, four midfielders for United piece,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope our big bosses aren't listening here, but uh, <laughs> exactly that, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it looks like it's going to be a a really interesting slash you know exciting end to the campaign on several different fronts potentially so so yeah bring it on end of the season let's do it
1: well we are going to get to that i'm going to ask for your predictions actually as to what will happen in the uh, decisive part of the table uh but we'll we, we'll get to that uh first we're going to talk about what has happened in the past few days that we've obviously missed First of all, Liverpool picked up another trophy. Second of the season, uh, another victory at Wembley, another at 0-0 and another victory on penalties. Uh, I thought it was quite funny actually how how much of a mirrored game it was to the, the Carabao Cup final. I thought it was virtually identical. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose Chelsea posed maybe a little bit less of a threat than they did in the Carabao Cup. But generally, both teams should have probably found less at least once but we end up going 120 minutes goals.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I thought they were a little little bit better in the first game, the first final. Thought Liverpool were stronger in this second game. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially in the, you know, the 90 minutes. Thought Chelsea um looked a little bit fresher in extra time, which was bound to be the case, you know, um they played fewer games. But yeah, very very strange. You know, we I, I we we did kind of preview it to be quite a tight game, didn't we? When we when we discussed it in the in the build up, and uh, that doesn't mean I was expecting a what was pretty much a carbon copy of the fixture um, to happen or to play out. But that's what happened, and you know, thankfully for 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 the pool from a Liverpool perspective, um, they've landed
1: on the right
0: side of the results again.
1: Yeah, I do think over the course of both finals, I think the first when you. Probably could flip a coin. If anything, um, it's it was probably a Chelsea win in terms of the performance, ever mm-hmm. so slightly. That is, um, but then in this game, I do think Liverpool deserve winners, and obviously we get to, we get to the the penalty shootouts, and Liverpool's come out on top again, which is it's really nice because it's the worst way to lose. And uh, parts of me does feel a little bit sorry for Chelsea that they've been denied two trophies because of a total of three missed penalties i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um which is just brutal really isn't
0: it it is yeah you know especially uh i mean the first one i don't want to keep going referring back to the, the first game but you know that the way it went all the way to the goalkeepers um i mean that's just so unfortunate but again yeah they've, they've, they've missed out again this time via penalties and um i'm sure we'll drill drill into kind of the modern Liverpool side and what they're doing well uh, on that point of view in a second. But um, I was just laughing to myself, Josh, thinking as you were talking about it's the worst way to lose finals because uh, Liverpool's record, I don't just mean clock here; I mean in general, in cup finals when it comes to penalty shootouts is ludicrous really. Like <laughs> I, I, if you think about it, you've got the these two this year and, um, Champions League final was obviously settled. The twenty nineteen was settled in the um, in the ninety, wasn't it? But the League Cup final, twenty twelve penalty shootouts. Uh, FA Cup final, two thousand six penalty shootouts. Istanbul, of course. Istanbul penalty yeah. shootouts. I mean, it's a uh, <laughs> you, you'd imagine there'd be a few more swing the other way there, but you know, may, maybe it's just destiny. And it, uh, it seems to be going the right way for Liverpool when it matters.
1: Yeah, it's funny actually. You know, it's nice that you've mentioned that. One question I do have for you though is: mm. is a penalty shootout a lottery, or can uh, you can you influence this? Because I am I am a believer, and I'm I'm gradually believing more and more that you can have an influence over this sort of thing. Uh, Rafa had an influence on it dating back to Istanbul. Uh, he he's famously said since that he threw out his his, his managerial career or whatever, any penalties that he watched on TV, he would make a note of and he got to a point where he filed them all in the database. God knows what it looked like. Probably might probably Excel and, and things like that. Yeah. Um but he, he reckons that when Liverpool were in that Istanbul final, the only player who he didn't have data on regarding the penalties was John Dal Thomason. Uh, and he scored, I think of only enough. Um but in terms of this, you know, the modern day, we have a lot more data and uh, Liverpool seem to be putting it to use. And it's not just data that Liverpool are putting to use either. It's like just the, the general preparation around the routine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I saw numerous things since the game. Um, you know, there was an interesting thread on Twitter that we may come on to. Um, Did you see that, that thread? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought
1: that the... was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, we should probably background it for people who maybe didn't see it. Um I'm feel free to, you know, fill in any gaps here, Josh, on my part. But you know, it was basically uh detailing the uh different approaches between Klopp and Tuchel, almost step by step, really, showing how quickly Klopp was quite prepared into how he was uh, you know, what order the penalties were gonna be. He was already kind of discussing one v one with with player-specific instructions whilst, you know, two was still basically formulating his is his lineup a penalty to takers. And um, it just gave Liverpool a little bit more downtime, a little bit more time to relax and think about what was to come, whereas it was still a little bit more frantic on the Chelsea side of things, which could have quite easily played a part, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really interesting, the different approaches between the two coaches. Hmm. Uh, I like the way Klopp... You know, asked each individual take take it in an intimate way with his arm around the player, just that just those two people in the conversation, and uh, he got it over and done with very very quickly, and basically give the players time to come to terms with the fact that they're taking a penalty when it's going to be, um, and I think on the back of Nuno eleven is he, yeah. Liverpool have started picking their designated spot of where they're going to shoot the previous day. Uh, so they've got like a full, you know, twenty four hours, whatever. They they know exactly where they're going, uh, which I think in, in in the past maybe that will have been a bit more of a decision on the spot, really. Mm. Um, mm. Whereas Tuchel, um, kind of, I think by the time Klopp had finished his selection and got his players into a huddle, and then a bit did a, big, did a big speech and things like that, I don't think Tuchel had spoke to a single player by that point. Um, he still I think had them in the huddle, didn't he? Still, still with yeah. the pen and paper, putting the order in place. Yeah, well, I think on the back of that, he then got them into a huddle, didn't he? And, and and almost picked each taker in the huddle as part of a group. And I think naturally, if 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 you're not keen on taking a penalty, you're probably less likely to say it in front of the group, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know about you, I I did get a bit of a vibe just generally that Mason Mount was not particularly keen to take one. Um. Not, an, not an against playable, player, but you know, he's lost five finals in a row now at Wembley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he's missed one or two pens. I'm not sure. Um, and he obviously missed a decisive penalty in this game. But just all those little elements do suggest that, OK, there's an element of luck in there, but you, you can really minimise that if you uh, put the evidence.
0: Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, that's what I would say. You asked me at the, at the start of the segment, do I think it's a lottery? To an extent, I I do, yeah. Uh, Dependent especially as well on teams involved. You know, if you put kind of two mid-table teams in a penalty shootout who don't really do much of that kind of um, finer detail work, then yeah, I do expect it to be a lottery. And how often you talk about former professionals talking themselves about being picked for a penalty and deciding as they walk into the penalty spot which way they're going to go and sticking to it. You know, it's all... A very uh, kind of individual process, but you know Liverpool, as we talked about with Nora eleven now and on previous episodes, they've obviously invested time into that. Um, I thought it was quite telling, and you know maybe Klopp was just saying this for the uh, f- to protect the play. I don't believe he was. Obviously, Klopp said afterwards that the reason Mane missed was partly down to down to him. You know, he told them to to go the other way uh, because he, he he believed that the the, the keeper. Mendy knew, you know, which way he was going to go. Um, so he's almost influenced that decision. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that shows that it's almost a, a choice as a collective. You know, it's not just a player picking up the ball on the side and deciding which way he's going to go and the team having no idea. It's it, it seems more like it's a decision that they make as a group, you know, at the, both the player and the staff about which way to go, which again does hint at the fact that there is that extra element of of research and and, and planning that goes into it, and you know it's such small margins; it makes it makes a difference.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you mate, but uh, I'm always really surprised by um, how few players go straight down the middle. I always think it's, I think maybe less so in the amateur game, but in the professional game, so many keepers dive. I'm not sure what the data is on that. There's a piece there, piece there actually that I've got saved that I'm meaning to read regarding that sort of thing. Um. But I always feel like that's a really effective penalty. I'm not sure any of Liverpool's shots went down the middle this time around.
0: The only thing with it, I agree. But the only thing is, I, I think there's just that fear of being made to look a little bit uh, yeah, stupid. Yeah. So, I've, I've seen it a few times where a player's gone down, down the middle, and that's been saved with defeat, um, even if they've made a dive. Where I guess if you if you do find the bottom corner or if you've got the ability to top corner, then it should, in theory, be almost unsavable. Although, I know it's, it's, it's easier said than done. So, I guess that's it. But you are right. You know, nine times out of ten, when you see a penalty go down the middle or you see, you know, a penka or something, um, it tends to be like a, a goal almost every time. Benzema obviously did it, didn't he? Um, in the... In, when was it? Oh, against Man City. Wasn't it in the Champions League semi-final? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, but here's one for you, Josh. On that on that discussion, then it is the problem that obviously even you know we're talking about Liverpool's attention to detail on this. But even if it's you know a team like Chelsea, we use Chelsea as the example, they still would have watched Liverpool's penalty takers, as I assume, going up ahead of that uh, ahead of that final. And if a player's done that once or twice, is the keeper thinking, "Well, I'm just going to gamble on staying down the middle"?
1: Yeah, potentially um i must say it's 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 not a a tactic or a ploy that i would use um unless it was a big big penalty that i kind of had to score i always think the big penalties like in a shootout or maybe to the side of the game late in the match or whatever i always i always think in them moments i would find myself saying go straight down the middle i'm not really sure why but obviously you've got to mix it up you can't just uh, you know there's so much data now available on these players that you kind of know where the player's gonna go if he goes down the middle every time. Um funny enough though, actually on the back of the penalties, uh obviously we look at expected goals to fair bit on this show. You can kind of do that sort of thing with penalties based on where the penalty ends up in terms of placement in the in the goal. Um and there's a there's a Twitter account that, you know, followed for a while, been around for a while, called the uh, penalty kickstart. And um it just looks at the, the the expected goals attached to each penalty in terms of where the penalty was placed in the goal. So for a bit of perspective on that, Liverpool's best penalty on the day was apparently Diogo Jota. Um, if you can remember, he went to Mendy's left and he hit it relatively high towards the top corner. And according to the, expect, the penalty stats model, that penalty is scored 99% of the time. So uh, that's virtually guaranteed. Milner's was 95%. Firmino's was 89%. Thiago's was 90%. All really, really good penalties for a bit of perspective. Again, Chelsea's best was Reese James, and that was just 80%. So on the back of the penalties that we took, um, we had an expected goals, if you like, of 6.2. Liverpool obviously scored six. And Chelsea's expected goals from their penalties was just 4.5. So, again, on top of Klopp's preparation, on top of players knowing um, maybe 24 hours in advance exactly where they're going to go, and on top of the actual placement of the penalties, you do you kind of look at that and think to yourself, a fair bit would have had to go wrong, really, for, um, for Liverpool to lose that penalty shootout.
0: Yeah, I think that what you've just explained there gives a little bit of a... Um a deeper level of it, I guess, but you know, you could even even just look look at it from a really basic point of view. Um and look at the records, you know, Liverpool took over those two finals, they took what was it? Um 17. sixteen penalties, seventeen penalties, um from a variety of players, you know, with different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, not all of them are, you know, elite finishes by any stretch. I mean, there was a goalkeeper in there. I think that one's a little bit. It probably is the most fortunate one because that it's unlikely that he would have been uh, practicing penalties. But the, the was it was a play, it was I mean, good pen, though, wasn't it? No, it was a very good pen. But I put that down to his own composure as opposed to maybe from yeah. like from the training pitch. But yeah, seventeen penalties, scored sixteen of them. You know, I think if you if you studied, you know, it's it's maybe not something we'd go and look at because it takes a lot of time. But I'm sure if someone, you know wanted to pass some time, look into this. It'd be interesting to see how many teams uh, involved in penalty shootouts, you know, their last 17 penalties, how many they actually converted. Because I think the conversion rate would be a lot smaller than 16. Um, I'd be yeah. expecting to be somewhere closer to 10-11, um, which, you know, as I said, maybe someone will go away and have a look at that, but that'll be a testament to to what Liverpool have been doing. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
1: Yeah, just for a little bit more context, the worst penalty of everyone's on the day was Sadio Mane. Uh, 60% of the time, Mane's effort was scored based on where where it was placed. Uh, And obviously Mane missed. Uh, So, yeah, another trophy for Liverpool, another nice win. And um, we moved on to, I suppose, the, the one competition that is not in our hands at the minute, and that is the Premier League. And Jürgen Klopp played a team of second strings. Uh total rotation from front to back apart from Alisson Becker, maybe. Um and you sent me a message during the game, Dave. You seemed to be impressed with what you saw.
0: Yeah, and I should add that you know this wasn't at the end of the game or even when Liverpool took took the lead. Um the game was level at this point, I think. Was, I messaged you just before the second goal, didn't I actually? Liverpool's second.
1: As the phone vibrated Liverpool scored, funnily enough. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, so, the irony yeah, You was. should
0: do that more often, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, the irony was, I uh, I was clearly watching on a delay because you, you replied, seeing something like good timing, I was like... Oh, no yeah. way. And then I went, oh, no, they're going to score. Yeah, that would be it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, like, uh, what, what I was really impressed about, to be honest, was uh, just the performance. You know, I know Southampton scored, but I thought it was a, a really dominant display. Um, which, you know, considering it was a second string is quite remarkable. And it it just reminded me, um, we, we've spoken about this before, but not recently. It just reminded me that, you know, when when players go into this Liverpool side, it's almost as if they adapt their skill set and mould them into the roles of, of what's needed in that position, as opposed to maybe be go, going in with their own, what they bring and having to kind of make it work on the pitch. They just seem to be able to adjust into those one to eleven positions so that there's no actual change in the dynamic of how Liverpool play, which I guess is a, a benefit of having years of years under you know under this under the same regime and, and, and drilling the same kind of um structure, tactics and just uh, being perfectly aligned.
1: Well I, I think that's one of the beauties of how Liverpool have recruited. Uh, if you if you if you're building a, a squad over the course of like 10 windows or whatever, as a po- compared to say, for example, Manchester City, who were in a bit more of a rush to get depth so that they can just clean up in terms of trophies. Liverpool have been able to get basically two clones for every, for every position really. You know, sometimes you would have um, a left back who is attacking and a left back who's a bit more defensive or something like that. Just two different options. If you look at what city you've got in certain areas, they've got loads of nice options in attacking areas, but some of them are left-footed, some of them are right-footed, some of them are threats in behind, some of them are playmakers, and you know you've got you've just got all different types of players, really, all different types of uh, profiles to use. And I think that you find that generally with Chelsea as well. Chelsea have got you know Ziyech, very different to Pulisic, who's very different to Mount, who's very different to Werner. Um, whereas Liverpool do have two clones across the board. In different positions, and it, it it has allowed Liverpool to build over time, and to get to a point now where, regardless of who's playing, the system remains totally unchanged for the most part. I think the one the one difference maybe is potentially Trent. We don't really have another player who does what Trent does. Gomez has done okay little impressions lately. Um, I think a few weeks back he, he registered a goal, uh, an assist on the back of a cross, which was decent. Uh, but generally, Gomez is, is very different to Trent. But apart from that, Liverpool have two clones across the board and um, it allows Liverpool to just play in exactly the same way from week to week, regardless of who's playing. And uh, this was another one of those top performances, really, where I said to you, didn't I, on the text, uh, if, if, if this was like a team of shadows, you would not think that Van Dijk... Fabinho, Trent, Robertson, Mane, Salah, Diaz were all benched or were all, you know, them not even in the squad.
0: Yeah, uh, and I think uh, another con- consequence of that, well, I say consequence, another benefit is the better term, is, you know, if you think about the, the amount of fixtures that Liverpool have, have had to play this season, you know, rotation has been inevitable and it, it does kind of feel like... Um, that low-key being a, a big thing for the pool this season that maybe more hasn't been made of, that they, they have been rotating a lot you know from game to game because of how many fixtures they've got and the the, the initial assumption is well that they're not they're not struggling because they've got you know really good players now loads of squad depth but i think the reality is if you look at that 11 yesterday josh i don't think anywhere else that's an 11 that is a Title chasing side, you know, just there is quality in there. I'm not trying to put any of those players down, but as an eleven, to me, it looked like it'd be closer to maybe like a top six side. But because of the, you know, because of the the the, the way that the Klopp has kind of built this team and the and the structure, and the way everything's so well rehearsed tactically, now these players can go in and 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 be you know, really strong and can compete like don't like a, a team that's pushing for the title. And I also think that throughout the season these rotations have been able to be made without any huge drop-off because, you know, say say centre back's going in with um who's a good example here. You know, say say Henderson playing the six instead of being or we'll use Milner, you know, going in there and it doesn't mean that they have to adapt their game. Because they've got a different player in that place. You know, they know that the, the, the actual team uh philosophy and how they go forward, how they move the ball about is gonna be exactly the same as it is week by week, no matter who's there. I just think that makes the the need to rotate uh a much easier task.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's about that consistency, isn't it? You know, have you have, have you player doing virtually the same thing from week to week without too many changes? There's obviously some downsides to sticking with the same formation every week because you can't, you know, the opponents almost know what to expect. But it doesn't seem to hinder Liverpool whatsoever. It doesn't seem to cause any, you know, Liverpool don't seem easy easy to predict. Don't don't seem easy to analyze by any means. And I think you've got some coaches out there, and Rodgers always comes to mind. When I think of this, who are just kind of obsessed with changing formation from week to week, almost because they think the the emphasis is on themselves to win the game through tactical adjustments whereas usually when you're doing that it doesn't take too long for things to kind of become very ambiguous and muddled into one big ball of you know things that are unclear basically a way that is unclear and um, sometimes you're counter-attack and some, sometimes you're dominant and I don't know I think Liverpool are very very difficult to analyse in terms of being so multifaceted and things like that but also at the same time the players who form part of the team seem to know exactly what to expect every time they play, um, and it just allows Liverpool to, to dominate regardless of who's playing. If you look at the numbers attached to the game, Liverpool should have kept a clean sheet in this game. Uh, they posted next year of 1.5, which is not bad, and Southampton posted next year of 0.1, um, which is awful. <laughs> and that, that, that comes from a total of just four shots, Liverpool. 24 shots. Liverpool 24 shots. That's Liverpool B team against Southampton's A team. I mean, it doesn't bode well, does it, for the Premier League? But I, I think it's uh, it's also a massive nod towards Liverpool's depth um, because earlier in the season we faced AC Milan, the likely winners of Serie A, by the way. Liverpool's B team away from home. And in that game we posted 22 shots and Milan posted 8 so again, just another testament to Klopp's work, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, it goes back to the point I was making earlier. Um, that you know, it, it's for me, it's not just about strength and depth. It's just about because everything's so aligned. It just that consistency makes it easier for these players to come in and know exactly what the roles are and and what to do. And yeah, it was such a dominating display. You know, again, I know Southampton is struggling. You know that they don't look good at all. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them in the summer because um, they look really poor. But I think on another night or if another team goes there, they they could have caused them problems. And I think they would have been boosted seeing the start of eleven, and that could have maybe given them some uh, emphasis to 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 go and do something in the game. And you know, uh comments before the match when you're saying talking about it being like a Champions League fan or. Not. I do believe they did want to win the game. They just they could not cope with Liverpool. Uh, they couldn't. They couldn't get out their own half. You know, they couldn't pass that. I, I thought Liverpool's pressing without the ball was phenomenal. I know yeah, I a, did. I did. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a trait of Liverpool's game anyway, but just specifically, you know, on on Tuesday nights, I just thought it was yeah phenomenal. Just Southampton could not cope with it at all. And I know that that, that Matip's goal. There was some talk of it being quite fortunate, but. As you've just said, Josh, you know 20-odd shots they had. Um, I, th- I think that kind of dominance in terms of shooting, you make your own look, don't you?
1: Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, players like Curtis Jones um, and then specifically Mina Mino and Harvey Elliott coming in. Neither of them have really played at all in, in about a month, I think. Um, but they just come in, look sharp and fresh as ever. Ready to deliver, you know. Not upset at all at the fact that they haven't been playing. Um, Mina Mino scores, and on the back of the the FA Cup talk, that was just that Minamino Mino interestingly ends the season, top scorer in the Carabao Cup, top scorer in the FA Cup. Um, it's it's incredible the way Klopp gets the best out of these players. It it does remind me that one one coach. I mean, a lot of Liverpool fans make me aren't going to want to hear this, but uh, one coach you always seemed to be able to. To do this was Ferguson. Um a few years back, you know, he, he whoever played for, for United, just seemed to be he would deliver, he would perform to a certain standard, whether it was Rafael, whether it was Darren Fletcher, um, you know, it could be anybody, Fed, Federico Makeda. Um, just anybody he would if perform to the, the...
0: title side the and goal in the nearing villa.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always remember that goal. He was tipped yeah. to the next Ronaldo on the back of that, we never saw him again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um But just this ability to just harvest everything from your players is just such a gift that Klopp seems to have. But one small, I don't even know if it's a negative, but I suppose it's a little bit of writing on the wall that Ox still didn't get a single minute, didn't even come on as a substitute. Uh, It does feel with him, and I think this is a massive negative from himself, you know, for him, is... He, I think he's he's arguably the one player who, who Klopp could not um, get the most from. And uh, when you've spent your career working under Arsene Wenger and Jurgen Klopp, and you haven't really came partic- particularly close at any point to fulfilling your potential, apart from a, a streak of form before a big injury, which he was unlucky with. You know, it's it's always going to be what could have been, but which is a sub-on.
0: It is, and you know, he's always felt like. Uh, he's still got time. He's still got time, but I mean, the reality is, this this summer he turns twenty nine. You know, he, he's well and truly in his prime years, and um, if anything, probably going to be start heading towards um, we what coming out of them. So, yeah, I think that'll always be a problem that he didn't quite hit hit the potential that that was expected from him. I think he was unlucky with the injury, as you said, but. I also think there's been a lot of time passed since then. And who knows? Maybe, yeah, I think he's definitely going to move on, isn't he, in the summer? And maybe if he goes to another club um, where he can play a bigger role, you know, get a consistent run in the team without pressure of, you know, really good players around you, yeah, uh, constant rotation, and then, then maybe he still goes on to be a good player. But the problem for me, Josh, and I don't know if you'd agree, is his kind of physical makeup and what his strengths uh, are quite heavily reliant on the physical aspects of his game and they're probably going to dwindle eventually, aren't they? Um, or sooner yeah. than maybe and ability and that could be a bigger problem for them.
1: Yeah, Saints are actually one of the teams I'd put him in, to be honest, uh, in terms of his qualities and what he's good at. Whether he, whether he could potentially thrive. Uh, I also think Leeds would be a good team for him in terms of what he's good at. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there with him because obviously he's he's not part of it at the minute. But um, the final day, mate, is approaching. So let's go through it. Um, we'll start with relegation. Who is getting relegated? Obviously, Norwich are down. Watford are down. Such a subject, <laughs> Touch you on.
0: Um, I, I mean, the pit by the time this show comes out, there might maybe people watching, listening post Thursday night fi- fixtures, which could be a very decisive day. Uh, Everton are at home to Crystal Palace, and Burnley are playing. Who are Burnley playing? Can we check that now? Um, uh, yeah, it's a. Book.
1: Burnley are playing Ooh, Villa. Villa, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, um, and that's at Villa Park. So,
1: and then they've got but, Newcastle final day.
0: Yeah, but Newcastle's a tough one. I suppose the, the benefit for them is it, they're at home. Um, but Newcastle are just, you know, Liverpool are the team we can get the better of them over, over the last few months. So, it should be, by
1: the way, Newcastle against uh, Arsenal. Jordan yeah. Wood.
0: Yeah, they, re- they really were. You know, they, they, you can tell that the, that the club's buzzing at the moment. So that's not an easy game. To answer your question, Josh, I think if I if try to be objective, and I promise I am being objective, I think Everton should probably get the better Palace. Because I don't know if you... Did you manage to watch the Brentford game at all on Sunday? I
1: uh, saw so the highlights, but I, I know that um, <laughs> things obviously changed on the back of the uh, the red card.
0: Yeah, well, they, they they started really strongly. Scored, I think, you know, they had about five shots accumulated of XG of like nearly one point five in the first fifteen minutes. Which, you know, that's pretty much like their season average, such as how poor they've been. So, it looked like they were just going to blow them away, and and that would that would be it, sort of. But obviously, lose the game, uh, go down to nine. So they're still in it. But I think if they start like that again against Palace, they, they should be all right. So it's between Burnley and Leeds, and. Apart me, Josh, although Leeds look really poor, I've I've got a feeling it might be Burnley, you know. I think uh, they haven't got a proper margin in place, have they? And I just think they could get sucked into it. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo Yeah,
1: I think you can flip a coin between them two, if I'm honest. Very mm. really difficult to predict. Uh I, I Leeds have got Brentford away. And I think they might lose that but if if they lose that then it means Burnley need a point from Villa and Newcastle they absolutely could get a point but I just don't know
0: what I <laughs> would so say if if people listen to this now and it's post an Everton defeat or the Northern Everton win then I I suddenly think Everton become really kind of favourites to go because they've got Who we haven't got final
1: day go. again Arsenal. Arsenal away yeah I mean Arsenal's heads are down though at the minute you know mm. like you know the, the Champions League's gone Spurs are, are not going to no. fall at uh, not just not um, so I think Arsenal could actually if Everton are more up for it if Everton put it to them like they have been specifically at home mm. I think Arsenal could crumble a little bit actually but yeah if if I was to put money on this I would probably probably go for Leeds I don't know it's tough you know so far
0: is there any I mean can we avoid the obvious Everton stuff is is there is there either of Burnley or Leeds that you prefer to go
1: I'd rather Burnley go Mm. yeah pretty comfortably as well yeah Uh, I like something about Leeds that I don't mind and uh, I like the playing style I'm interested to see how Jesse Marsh does with a full season yeah Um, yeah, and Burnley have been in the, in the in the league for a few years, and you know we know what Burnley are about, don't we?
0: Yeah, yeah. Then again, no, <laughs> mate. It might be able to get Rafinha like, on a on a cheap deal. if Leeds go.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw the piece on the Athletics during the week saying uh, apparently in their last game, Rafinha was kind of at the end of the game. He was kind of looking round as though as though it was his last mm. uh, visit to uh, Ellen Road in a way. Mm. Um, but Barcelona, let's say for them, so it's going to be interesting. To see what happens there. Yeah. In terms of a uh, fourth, I assume you you know what's going to happen there.
0: Yeah, but is it a good, quick opportunity just to discuss how that one's panned out? Because uh, yeah. what's your view? I I am actually really interested to get your view on on how it's panned out the last couple of weeks with Arsenal and, and Tottenham. Um,
1: I think Spurs are the better team. I think Spurs have got better individuals. I think Spurs have got a better coach, <laughs> and certainly from a Liverpool perspective, Spurs would a far trickier prospect to beat mm-hmm. than Arsenal. Way, so I think all things considered, the right thing is happening. But I think from an Arsenal perspective, maybe they get over the line if Tierney and Party remain fit. But I think on the back of them not remaining fit, and you know they suffered a few injuries, and then brought in a few players who were maybe second strings. Maybe Arsenal are in a position at the minute to be able to do that and and keep going as normal. Maybe like a team at like Liverpool, and uh, for a few years it has felt like Arsenal, are just a mentally fragile team at times. You know they are prone to crumbling aren't they? and the and Roy Keane hates them, doesn't he? For <laughs> for reasons associated with that, and the the, the opposite of Roy of a Roy Keane team really aren't Um, so I'm not that surprised. And looking at Spurs numbers actually on the Conti, second half of the season, underlying numbers that is like expected goals and goal difference and things like that, I am really intrigued as to how they will get on next season. Because I think they could be, I I think they could leapfrog Chelsea next season, Spurs. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how close he would get them to Liverpool and City but if the if he gets a good window from from Daniel Levy I'm really interested to see what he can do with that team
0: Yeah they, I agree with pretty much everything you've said um, while we were chatting I was just wondering because obviously Arsenal being called bottlers now but I know it was a little bit different to you know maybe start of April but I did, I'm having a look at the start of the month now and you know, there's only two points between the two Arsenal and Tottenham. Really, same number of games going into it, going into May. And you think, you know, is it really bottling? It is if you if that's overturned. You know, it's it's not as if it's a huge points difference, is it really? Um,
1: no, I think I think for me, maybe maybe that tag is stemming from the the nature of the loss to Newcastle because they got absolutely battered. they got battered. fully bullied. Um, lost every duel and you know if you, if you look at that game and, and think one of them teams is playing for a spot on the Champions League next season you would not have thought it was Arsenal mm. Mm.
0: Potentially Potentially you're right but I, I I agree with Spurs the only maybe thing that uh, could change that is Conte just comes out with some very bizarre statements that makes me think he's, he, he wants to leave <laughs> I'm not saying he does but he does say some bizarre things that you're like what, what is the message you're trying to pull out there but um, well, I think
1: he'll have another year then at least yeah I agree I I, I hope he stays just to see what he does because I, I rate him so highly mm-hmm. and uh, I rate Kane so highly I rate Son so highly and they play virtually every week for them so if we can build something around them like they tried to get Diaz imagine they had the front mm-hmm. three of Diaz, Kane, Son you know that yeah. could have been that could have been serious issues for the rest of the league that mm-hmm. uh, another little note before we go to the, the winners who gets confidence league because uh seventh is currently west ham they are on 56 points and sixth is manchester united two points ahead united final day have palace and west ham final day have i think it's brighton uh do you think there's any prospect there of of west ham leapfrogging united they have got a better goal difference so if united draw uh, West Ham win. West Ham would get it. Well, that's we'll get, we'll get, you know, what,
0: Yeah, that's literally what I was about to say. See, I was like, United actually need to go and win that game, and they're going to Palace away last game of the season. Um, I imagine you know they'll be, they'll be right up for it. United. Won't be up for it at all. You know, the man If, they, out,
1: if they get in the Conference League, like, oh my word, that's gonna be a it. I, I
0: maybe it, can, it could happen. It genuinely it could happen. You know, the Ragnik's obviously had enough. He can't wait to go. There's players there who know they won't be there under the new regime. You know, they have down tools weeks ago. I went to watch United against Chelsea, actually like watch them live uh, a few weeks ago. And Josh, honestly, I couldn't believe how bad they were. Like, I just couldn't not it was a one it was a one-all draw, so it wasn't even a bad result. Uh, but the performance I was like who is this team you know you're yeah. literally just hitting it long to Ronaldo uh, heel, it, it'll stick with him and he can kind of get runners off I'm so bad obviously they've been smashed by uh, Brighton 4-0 terrible results for a team who'd scored you know 12 home league goals all season um, so wouldn't surprise me if you lose that and you know West Ham can get get, get the result then then yeah it'll
1: uh, be quite funny to, to see them go in that conference league Yeah, it will. I hope it happens. And uh, I actually don't think Man United will beat Palace, but I don't. I'm not sure West Ham will beat Brighton. Mm -hmm. Um, Brighton away is a tough game. I know sometimes Brighton's results don't suggest as much, but Brighton are a good team, and um, so I wouldn't be surprised if both of those sides drop points. But I think. On the back of the season that they've had, I think United deserve to be in that Conference League. To be honest, next season because they've have, they've have been a mess, mate. Honestly, West Ham have had a far better season than them, but yeah. they've had obviously other things yeah, on the mind in terms of the Europa League.
0: Hmm.
1: And then the top of the table, what happens?
0: <laughs> um, you know, I go first, and then maybe like then you take over and get and um, give give us your thoughts. But I don't know, like. All logic to me says, you know, City win that game. But, and this is purely just looking at it from an emotional perspective. uh, And I'm talking about a wider footballing perspective rather than my own emotions, of course. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to paint a picture that isn't true. But something just wouldn't surprise me if there's another twist in this tale, you know. Um, Because... Liverpool have done everything right in terms of putting that pressure on City. You know, it just it has been relentless the pressure they've been putting on them. Um, Even you know, coming, uh, getting away, putting the second string out, still getting the win yesterday. Like all everybody is talking about is, will City beat Villa? That's all they need to do, but nobody is even considering that. Liverpool have got to have got to win their game because it almost feels inevitable that they will. It feels like this Liverpool side won't f- fall in that regard. They will win their final game. So, but will City? That's the bigger question. Um, I don't think there's any bias in there. I think it's understandable why people are thinking like that. So, my my head says this one gets settled fairly straightforward with City. Um, alone Villa away and become champions but there is this kind of emotional aspect to it that thinks there might just be another twist in this and it, it could be one of those uh, not Aguero-esque kind of ends to the season but you know quite a dramatic finale
1: I agree really I think if you was a, a, a screenwriter a scriptwriter, <laughs> you would probably write it so that on the final day of the season City have to go and beat a team managed by Stephen Gerrard. It's just hilarious how this has worked out really. Phil Coutinho is obviously playing there, Danny Ings is playing there. Um so it's it's gonna be absolute Barclays Premier League if uh, something happens here, but I, I don't think it will have managed. Um according to five thirty eight City are eighty two percent on to win the league. Liverpool have an outside chance of 18%. So that something will potentially go wrong. Um, one, one element of hope maybe that you could throw in there if listeners want this is earlier in the season when Villa faced City, City did not deserve to win that game. Uh, the won 2 one the expected goals on a day was 0.9 for Villa, 0.9 for City. Uh, so it was very much a split down the middle, City were not at their usual level. That maybe was just their portion of the season where they were falling off a little bit and maybe Villa were still benefiting from a bit of bounce when it comes to Gerrard. But 0.9 is not good for City. In terms of their season as a whole, all competitions, this is... um, They posted 0.7 against Chelsea, 0.8 against Atletico Madrid, 0.8 against Brentford and then Villa. So their fourth worst attacking performance really came against Villa this season. Um, Obviously Gerrard has something to play for here. He's, he's very, very interested in this game. It's not one of those knock and bets. So I suppose there's a glimmer of hope there. You know, the nature of this pod, we try not to be cheerleaders, do we? And we try to just say things as they are. And this is very, very unrealistic. But there's something there. There's something there more than a few years back, I think the last game of the season was against Brighton. And uh, they end up winning like 4-1 or something like that. I think there's a bit more hope for this one. Would have been nice if it was away. The fact that it's at home and City are having a week to prepare. Villa play on Thursday night is not great. But I suppose you never know.
0: Yeah, look, there is more there is more hope and you know, you can take comfort in that uh, City city gonna come up against a highly motivated team. Um I think the problem is, because we talked about this, you know, with from a Liverpool perspective, even a highly motivated team can't stop Liverpool or Man City when they're at the very best. Um so the hope for is that maybe City aren't at the best, you know, nerves get the better of them. I think they will be will be very nervous for this game because they've got nothing else. You know, they haven't got they haven't won another trophy, have It's this all or, or nothing for them this year. Um and to win nothing would be a disaster for Man City, an absolute disaster. So I think there'll be a lot of pressure on them to win. Um and maybe that could impact things because it doesn't matter how good you are, you know, pressure's pressure, then it, it can take its toll even on the best players. But I take it you've got absolutely no concerns
1: about Liverpool's game. No, I feel confident about Liverpool's game. It's that on field. I watched Wolves against um, City the other day, funnily enough, and they were just wide open. Which, and, uh,
0: Josh, just quickly, was was that game uh in the last kind of final day shootout did Liverpool also play Wolves that day?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I, I think we won that game at at the time. Um weird. Something like that, yeah, yeah. I can't remember to be honest, but that—that's mm. funny actually that you mentioned that. Mm. Uh, so I don't think Liverpool will slip up, but City just with the Gerrard factor, maybe I don't know what it is. Gazzino you know, can do things in moments. You know he's been described as a moments player in the past, and Danny Ings is is quite clinical on his day. You know he can take a chance when he gets it. So it's going to be really interesting to see if something can happen. Uh, the big thing for me is the first goal. When when City don't score first, it's just nowhere near the same. West Ham scored first against them the other day; they end up drawing two all. Well. That first goal is is massive to how they how they play, how how they control the game. Uh so if Villa can just do something with, in, by scoring first. I would have serious hope, but it's that first goal. You just never know, really. But it's one to watch, and uh, it's one for us to maybe analyse next week. Maybe you know, we'll see what happens. Ahead of the, the Champions League final, which Liverpool will have to look forward to regardless of what happens in the Premier League. So yeah, the good times anyway, still rolling regardless of what happens on Sunday, but hopefully things things go a bit mad. Dave, thanks for joining us, mate, and thanks for joining us throughout the season. It's been a joy to have you on.
0: Thank you, mate. Um good luck Sunday, I guess.
1: And you know same to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Look, I'm, I'm open. it's all sorted by Thursday night. Um, yeah. But we'll see, we'll see, mate. But yeah, no, thank you and cheers for tuning in, everyone.
1: Yeah, thanks for tuning in, and we will be back next week. So, uh, up the reds. Hopefully, we end up as, as Premier League winners, but we'll see. See you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.